Chapter Twenty Three, Part Two of Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Lyons. Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Thirty Eight, Part Two. Mrs. York was not irritated at the reproof, worded with a severity so simple, dictated by a pride so quiet. Turning coolly to Miss Moore, she said, nodding her cap approvingly, "'She has spirit in her, after all. Always speak as honestly as you have done just now,' she continued, "'and you'll do.' I repel a recommendation so offensive, was the answer, delivered in the same pure key, with the same clear look. I reject counsel poisoned by insinuation. It is my right to speak as I think proper. Nothing binds me to converse as you dictate. So far from always speaking, as I have done just now, I shall never address anyone in a tone so stern or in language so harsh, unless in answer to unprovoked insult. "'Mother, you have found your match,' pronounced little Jessie, whom the scene appeared greatly to edify. Rose had heard the whole with an unmoved face. She now said, "'No, Miss Hellstone is not my mother's match, for she allows herself to be vexed.' My mother would wear her out in a few weeks. Surely Kildar manages better. Mother, you have never hurt Miss Kildar's feelings yet. She wears armor under her silk dress that you cannot penetrate. Mrs. York often complained that her children were mutinous. It was strange that with all her strictness, with all her strong-mindedness, she could gain no command over them. A look from their father had more influence with them than a lecture from her. Miss Moore, to whom the position of witness to an altercation in which she took no part was highly displeasing, as being an unimportant secondary post, now rallying her dignity, prepared to utter a discourse which was to prove both parties in the wrong, and to make it clear to each disputant that she had reason to be ashamed of herself, and ought to submit humbly to the superior sense of the individual then addressing her. Fortunately for her audience, she had not harangued above ten minutes when Sarah's entrance with the tea-tray called her attention, first to the fact of that damsel having a gilt comb in her hair and a red necklace round her throat and secondly, and subsequently, to a pointed remonstrance to the duty of making tea. After the meal, Rose restored her to good humour by bringing her guitar and asking for a song, and afterwards engaging her in an intelligent and sharp cross-examination about guitar-playing and music in general. Jessie, meantime, directed her assiduities to Caroline. Sitting on a stool at her feet, she talked to her, first about religion and then about politics, 
Jessie was accustomed at home to drink in a great deal of what her father said on these subjects, and afterwards, in company, to retail, with more wit and fluency than consistency or discretion, his opinions, antipathies, and preferences. She rated Caroline soundly for being a member of the established church, and for having an uncle a clergyman. She informed her that she lived on the country, and ought to work for her living honestly, instead of passing a useless life, and eating the bread of idleness in the shape of tithes. Thence Jessie passed to a review of the ministry at that time in office, and a consideration of its deserts. She made familiar mention of the names of Lord Castlereagh and Mr. Percival. Each of these personages she adorned with a character that might have separately suited Moloch and Belial. She denounced the war as wholesale murder, and Lord Wellington as a hired butcher. Her auditress listened with exceeding edification. Jessie had something of the genius of humour in her nature. It was inexpressibly comic to hear her repeating her sire's denunciations in his nervous northern Doric, as hearty a little Jacobin as ever pent a free mutinous spirit in a muslin frock and sash. Not malignant by nature, her language was not so bitter as it was racy, and the expressive little face gave a piquancy to every phrase which held a beholder's interest captive. Caroline chid her when she abused Lord Wellington, but she listened delighted to a subsequent tirade against the Prince Regent. Jessie quickly read in the sparkle of her hearer's eye and the laughter hovering round her lips that at last she had hit on a topic that pleased. Many a time she had heard the fat Adonis of fifty discussed at her father's breakfast-table, and now she gave Mr. York's comments on the theme, genuine as uttered by his Yorkshire lips. But, Jessie, I will write about you no more. This is an autumn evening wet and wild, there is only one cloud in the sky, but it curtains it from pole to pole. The wind cannot rest. It hurries sobbing over hills of sullen outline, colorless with twilight and mist. Rain has beat all day on that church tower. It rises dark from the stony enclosure of its graveyard. The nettles, the long grass, and the tombs all drip with wet this evening reminds me too forcibly of another evening some years ago, a howling, rainy autumn evening, too, when certain who had that day performed a pilgrimage to a grave new-made in a heretic cemetery sat near a wood-fire on the hearth of a foreign dwelling. They were merry and social, but they each knew that a gap never to be filled had been made in their circle. They knew they had lost something whose absence could never be quite atoned for so long as they lived, and they knew that heavy falling rain was soaking into the wet earth which covered their lost darling, 
and that the sad, sighing gale was mourning above her buried head. The fire warmed them. Life and friendship yet blessed them. But Jessie lay cold, coffined, solitary, only the sod screening her from the storm. Mrs. York folded up her knitting, cut short the music lesson and the lecture on politics, and concluded her visit to the cottage at an hour early enough to ensure her return to Briar Mains before the blush of sunset should quite have faded in heaven, or the path up the fields have become thoroughly moist with evening dew. The lady and her daughters gone, Caroline felt that she ought to resume her scarf, kiss her cousin's cheek, and trip away homeward. If she lingered much later, dusk would draw on, and Fanny would be put to the trouble of coming to fetch her. It was both baking and ironing, ironing day at the rectory, she remembered. Fanny would be busy. Still, she could not quit her seat at the little parlour window. From no point of view could the west look so lovely as from that lattice with the garland of jessamine round it, whose white stars and green leaves seemed now but grey pencil outlines, graceful in form but colourless in tint, against the gold incarnadined of a summer evening, against the fire-tinged blue of an August sky at eight o'clock p.m. Caroline looked at the wicket gate, besides which holly oaks spired up tall, and she looked at the close hedge of privet and laurel fencing in the garden. Her eyes longed to see something more than the shrubs. Before they turned from that limited prospect, they longed to see a human figure of a certain mould and height pass the hedge and enter the gate. A human figure she at last saw, Nay, too, Frederick Murgatroyd went by, carrying a pail of water. Joe Scott followed, dangling on his forefinger the keys of the mill. They were going to lock up mill and stables for the night, and then betake themselves home. So must I, thought Caroline, as she half rose and sighed. This is all folly, heart-breaking folly, she added. In the first place, though I should stay till dark, there will be no arrival, because I feel in my heart fate has written it down in today's page of her eternal book that I am not to have the pleasure I long for. In the second place, if he stepped in this moment, my presence here would be a chagrin to him, and the consciousness that it must be so would turn half my blood to ice. His hand would, perhaps, be loose and chill if I put mine into it. His eye would be clouded if I sought its beam. I should look up for that kindling, something I have seen in past days, when my face or my language or my disposition had at some, some happy moment pleased him. I should discover only darkness. I had better go home. She took her bonnet from the table where it lay, and was just fastening the ribbon, when Hortense, directing her attention to a splendid bouquet of flowers in a glass on the same table, mentioned that Miss Keeldar had sent them that morning from Fieldhead, 
and went on to comment on the guests that lady was at present entertaining, on the bustling life she had lately been leading, adding diverse conjectures that she did not very well like it, and much wonderment that a person who was so fond of her own way as the heiress did not find some means of sooner getting rid of this cortege of relatives. But they say she actually will not let Mr. Simpson and his family go, she added. They wanted much to return to the South last week, to be ready for the reception of the only son who is expected home from a tour. She insists that her cousin Henry shall come and join his friends here in Yorkshire. I dare say she partly does it to oblige Robert and myself. How to oblige Robert and you? inquired Caroline. Why, my child, you are dull, don't you know? You must often have heard. Please, ma'am, said Sarah, opening the door, the preserves that you told me to boil in treacle, the confitures, as you call them, is all burnt to the pan. Les confitures, elles sont brûlées? Ah, quelle négligence coupable! Coquine de cuisinière, feel insupportable! And Mademoiselle, hastily taking from a drawer a large linen apron and tying it over her black apron, rushed, éperdu, into the kitchen, whence, to speak truth, exhaled an odor of calcined sweets rather strong than savory. The mistress and maid had been in full feud the whole day on the subject of preserving certain black cherries, hard as marbles, sour as sloes. Sarah held that sugar was the only orthodox condiment to be used in that process. Mademoiselle maintained, and proved it by the practice and experience of her mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, that treacle, melasse, was infinitely preferable. She had committed an imprudence in leaving Sarah in charge of the preserving pan, for her want of sympathy in the nature of its contents had induced a degree of carelessness in watching their confection, whereof the result was dark and cindery ruin. Hubbub followed, high upbraiding and sobs rather loud than deep or real. Caroline, once more turning to the little mirror, was shading her ringlets from her cheek to smooth them under her cottage bonnet, certain that it would not only be useless but unpleasant to stay longer, when, on the sudden opening of the back door, there fell an abrupt calm in the kitchen. The tongues were checked, pulled up with bit and bridle. Was it, was it Robert? He often, almost always entered by the kitchen-way on his return from market. No, it was only Joe Scott, who, having hemmed significantly thrice, every hem being meant as a lofty rebuke to the squabbling womankind, said, Now, I thought I heard a crack. None answered. And, he continued pragmatically, As to master's comed, and as he'll enter through this hoyle, I consider it desirable to step in and let you know. A house full of women is never fit to be cummed on without warning. Here he is. Walk forward, sir. They were playing up queerly, but I think I've quietened em. 
Another person, it was now audible, entered. Joe Scott proceeded with his rebukes. "'What do you mean by being all in darkness? Sarah, thou queen, canst thou not light a candle? It were sundown an hour since. He'll be break his shins again, some of your pots and tables and stuff. Take ten to this baking bowl, sir. They set it in your way fair as if they did it malice.' To Joe's observations succeeded a confused sort of pause, which Caroline, though she was listening with both her ears, could not understand. It was very brief. A cry broke it, a sound of surprise, followed by the sound of a kiss, ejaculations, but half articulate, succeeded. "'Mon Dieu! Mon Dieu! Est-ce que je m'y entendais?' were the words chiefly to be distinguished. Et tu te portes toujours bien, bon sûr? inquired another voice. Robert, certainly. Caroline was puzzled, obeying an impulse, the wisdom of which she had not time to question. She escaped from the little parlour by way of leaving the coast clear, and running upstairs, took up a position at the head of the banisters, whence she could make further observations ere presenting herself. It was considerably past sunset now. Dusk filled the passage, yet not such deep dusk, but that she could presently see Robert and Hortense traverse it. "'Caroline! Caroline!' called Hortense a moment afterwards. "'Venez voir mon frère!' "'Strange!' commented Miss Hellstone. "'Passing strange! What does this unwanted excitement about such an everyday occurrence as a return from market portend? She has not lost her senses, has she? Surely the burnt treacle has not crazed her!' She descended in a subdued flutter, yet more was she fluttered when Hortense seized her hand at the parlour door, and leading her to Robert, who, who stood in bodily presence tall and dark against the one window, presented her with a mixture of agitation and formality, as though they had been utter strangers, and this was their first mutual introduction. Increasing Puzzle he bowed rather awkwardly, and turning from her with a stranger's embarrassment, he met the doubtful light from the window. It fell on his face, and the enigma of the dream, a dream it seemed, was at its height. She saw a visage like and unlike Robert, and no Robert. "'What is the matter?' said Caroline. "'Is my sight wrong? Is it my cousin?' "'Certainly it is your cousin,' asserted Hortense. Then who was this now coming through the passage, now entering the room? Caroline, looking round, met a new Robert, the real Robert, as she felt at once. "'Well,' said he, smiling at her questioning, astonished face, "'which is which?' "'Ah, this is you,' was the answer. He laughed. I believe it is me, and do you know who he is? You never saw him before, but you have heard of him. She had gathered her senses now. It can be only one person, your brother, since it is so like you, my other cousin, Louis. 
clever little Oedipus. You would have baffled the Sphinx. But now see us together, change places, change again to confuse her, Louis. Which is the old love now, Lena? As if it were possible to make a mistake when you speak. You should have told Hortense to ask, but you are not so much alike. It is only your height, your figure, and complexion that are so similar. And I am Robert, am I not? asked the newcomer, making a first effort to overcome what seemed his natural shyness. Caroline shook her head gently. A soft, expressive ray from her eye beamed on the real Robert. It said much. She was not permitted to quit her cousin soon. Robert himself was peremptory in obliging her to remain. Glad, simple, and affable in her demeanor, glad for this night at least, in light, bright spirits for the time, she was too pleasant an addition to the cottage circle to be willingly parted with by any of them. Lewis seemed naturally rather a grave, still, retiring man, but the Caroline of this evening, which was not, as you know, reader, the Caroline of every day, thawed his reserve and cheered his gravity soon. He sat near her and talked to her. She already knew his vac vocation was that of tuition. She learned now that he had for some years been the tutor of Mr. Simpson's son, that he had been travelling with him, and had accompanied him to the north. She inquired if he liked his post, but got a look in reply which did not invite or license further question. The look woke Caroline's ready sympathy. She thought it a very sad expression to pass over so sensible a face as Lewis's, for he had a sensible face, though not handsome, she considered, when seen near Robert's. She turned to make the comparison. Robert was leaning against the wall, a little behind her, turning over the leaves of a book of engravings, and probably listening, at the same time, to the dialogue between her and Lewis. "'How could I think them alike?' she asked herself. "'I see now it is Hortense Lewis resembles, not Robert.' And this was in part true. He had the shorter nose and longer upper lip of his sister, rather than the fine traits of his brother. He had her mould of mouth and chin, all less decisive, accurate, and clear than those of the young mill-owner. His air, though, deliberate and reflective, could scarcely be called prompt and acute. You felt, in sitting near and looking up at him, that a slower and probably a more benignant nature than that of the elder Moor shed calm on your impressions. Robert, perhaps aware that Caroline's glance had wandered toward and dwelt upon him, though he had neither met nor answered it, put down the book of engravings, and approaching, took a seat at her side. She resumed her conversation with Lewis, but, while she talked to him, her thoughts were elsewhere. Her heart beat on the side from which her face was half averted. She acknowledged a steady, manly, kindly air in Lewis, but she bent before the secret power of Robert. To be so near him, though he was silent, though he did not touch so much as her scarf fringe, 
or the white hem of her dress affected her like a spell. Had she been obliged to speak to him only, it would have quelled, but at liberty to address another it excited her. Her discourse flowed freely. It was gay, playful, eloquent. The indulgent look and placid manner of her auditor encouraged her to ease. The sober pleasure expressed by his smile drew out all that was brilliant in her nature. She felt that this evening she appeared to advantage, and, as Robert was a spectator, the consciousness contented her. Had he been called away, collapse would at once have succeeded stimulus. But her enjoyment was not long to shine full-orbed. A cloud soon crossed it. Hortense, who for some time had been on the move ordering supper, and was now clearing the little table of some books, etc., to make room for the tray, called Robert's attention to the glass of flowers, the carmine and snow and gold of whose petals looked radiant indeed by candlelight. "'They came from Fieldhead,' she said, intended as a gift to you, no doubt. We know who is the favourite there. Not I, I'm sure.' It was a wonder to hear Hortense jest, a sign that her spirits were at high-water mark indeed. "'We are to understand, then, that Robert is the favourite, observed Louis. "'Mon cher,' replied Hortense, "'Robert, c'est tout ce qu'il y a de plus précieux au monde. À côté de lui, le reste du genre humain n'est que du rebut. N'ai-je pas raison, mon enfant?' she added, appealing to Caroline. Caroline was obliged to reply, "'Yes,' and her beacon was quenched. Her star withdrew as she spoke. "'Et toi, Robert?' inquired Louis. "'When you shall have an opportunity, ask herself,' was the quiet answer. Whether he reddened or paled, Caroline did not examine. She discovered that it was late, and she must go home. Home she would go. Not even Robert could detain her now.' End of chapter 23, part 2.